Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super-fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Welcome to DSC's Campfires with Larry Wysoon. The unique blend of hunting, conservation, and the outdoor lifestyle delivered in an entertaining, informative fashion that only a veteran outdoorsman can do. DSC's Campfires is brought to you by DSC, Conservation, Education, and Hunter Advocacy. Hornady, Accurate, Deadly, Dependable. Trigicon, Brilliant Aiming Solutions. Taurus, Makers of the Raging Hunter Handgun. Burnham Brothers Game Calls. Double Nickel Taxidermy. Now here's your host, Larry Wysoon. Thank you, David Fox, for another great introduction. and appreciate you being with me all these years. Today, we have got another episode with Dr. Mike Arnold, who has become a very special person as far as I'm concerned. And I haven't met him in person yet, but I'll tell you what, from the conversations I've had with him on the podcast and reading some of the things that he's written, I can guarantee you that you, like I, would dearly love to spend time with him around a campfire where you could actually see him across the, the flames and kind of see what his face looks like when he tells some of the stories that he does. What a fabulous story and what a fabulous individual, as well as a researcher when it comes to wildlife. Before getting into that episode today, however, we need to visit a little bit about uh, Hayden Outdoors. Hayden Outdoors is the sponsor of our Conservation Moment segment, and sometimes that segment is long, and sometimes it's it's relatively short, and today it may be a little bit on the shorter side, because uh, I really want to spend more time today with, with Dr. Arnold and a little bit of time that I have available before I have to leave on my next trip. Hayden Outdoors does such a great job in, in working with landowners, the, those that, who are selling their properties, and then the potential landowners who are buying their properties. And the one thing I've learned about all the agents that they have scattered about throughout the West, that those guys know their business, and they're very honest and very truthful about what they know about property. And any questions you might have, they'll be willing to answer. They'll, if they don't know the answer, I should say, they will find out for you. One of the things you always want to be careful of is is that when you look at property, that it's something that you really do want and something that's really going to work for what you're hoping it will. There's some properties because of different regulations, maybe in a particular state, uh, maybe you're not going to be able to accomplish what you want to. There's always water rights to consider. There's surface rights, of course. And then if you're in Texas, a lot of times the mineral rights have already been sold off a long time ahead of before you ever had a chance to buy the property. So... When you get ready to buy that property, get with the guys at Hayden Outdoors. Ask them any question that you want to. Tell them kind of what you're looking for or maybe exactly what you're looking for. And then be patient a little bit because they may have to do some looking around before they find that ideal place that'll suit everything that you're hoping to do for you and your family, not only for the time being, but into the future as well. Now let's get on with today's show. Well, good afternoon, everybody. Good morning, depending on where you are when you're listening to this podcast. But uh, I feel so very honored to have a special guest back. And with visiting with him on the phone, I've become he's become a dear friend, whether he knows it or not. But Dr. Mike Arnold, welcome back to DSC's Campfires. 
Oh, Larry, uh, you've become a good friend, too, and that's not a good thing for me to say. <laughs> for me. <laughs> I think you remember I wrote you and said, are you just trying to crash your uh, views and likes on your show? But thank you for having me back. All seriousness, I, I love being here. Well, it's truly an honor. And as we spoke a little bit before we turned this thing on, I, I really don't know whether I would have talked to you this time because I just happened to get, get a copy of the most recent issue of Sports Afield, and there's an article by you about hunting down in the dry tropics. I think you might have been in Campeche or somewhere in the Yucatan, and you of all people, thank God for it, but you shot not only a gray or brown brocket deer, but you shot a red brocket deer. Both those critters are extremely wary, difficult to hunt, and you got both of them on the same trip. (laughs) Well, I Look, you know, I would really, really love to claim that it was skill on my part. Well, do. <laughs> it wasn't. Now, you know, I had great guides. It was a great camp. It's in a, you know, you and I were talking about it. We, uh, they're just, uh, they have trail cams out under those trees that the brocket deer get uh, attracted to. It's a member of the cotton family, I believe, that drops its flowers. You know about it. I mean, and it, and it, they're real sweet. Yes, so the, yes, when sir. those flowers are dropping, the brocket deer and, well, everything comes in. But anyway, yeah, they. it was a great area and an actual fact. You know, I got them within, I uh, got one on the first afternoon, straight around, <laughs> and then the uh, next morning I got the red, and I could not believe it. I just could not believe it because I knew how difficult those darn things were going to be to hunt. So, like I say, I wish, I wish I could say, well, yeah, I went down there and I knew what I was doing. I didn't have a clue. <laughs> I just had good, I had good guides. Let's just put it that way. That is always really important. Of course, that's a really unique area. And for those folks who have no idea what a brocket deer is, once you tell them what a gray or brown brocket deer is and what a red brocket there is. Yeah, so the the grape, they're, they're both, if you know what a pygmy antelope looks like, <laughs> the size of one of those, they're a little bit larger than than that in most of those species. Uh, the gray brown's a bit larger, maybe 50% larger than what a bush diker in Africa would be like. Or if you think about a fawn white tail, okay, yes. say that it's uh, almost lost its spots. That's sort of the size there. But what they are, they're a, they're a little deer. They're a deer species. They're not the same genus that we have up here, obviously, but they're, they're a species of, of what has been referred to as Central American, South American uh, deer, and they have white tails down there too. Now Larry knows that, and I've never I've never gotten one of those. But these little guys are just a different little offshoot. The gray brown, like I say, is that's about the size you know I just described to you. The red is much smaller. Yes, sir. Uh, the little red brocket uh, in that area, anyway, in the Yucatan Peninsula in the dry tropics. Uh, is smaller than the gray-brown. You shoot them out of Michons. uh, You're about 25 feet off the ground, and you use a shotgun. I'd never done that before either. I'd never, well, I'd climbed up into trees, but I'd never, uh, (laughs) and tree stands for whitetails, but I'd never shot out of a Michon, and I'd never used a, me personally, I'd never used a shotgun on a big game animal like that, or a little game animal, but anyway, uh, something like that. So that was a, brand new experience as well and you just sit there and you are covered up from head to toe because they are sharp eyed oh my goodness they are wary little things so they're, they're truly unique you mentioned the uh, sitting up in the tree with a shotgun I've only taken one other animal that way and that happened to be with my granddad's single shot shotgun and it was the first white tail deer that I shot many 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 years oh, ago and the only other time that I've ever taken an animal was just as what you mentioned is I Michonne with a shotgun there in uh, we were close to the old town of uh, Pasajal in uh, Campeche in mm-hmm. a few years ago just an absolutely fantastic area tell, tell people about their antlers because you, you mentioned the tropical whitetail I want to visit a little bit about that in a second if you don't mind but tell them about the antler styles or the antlers that the brocket deer have 
so they look like a spike bug is really what the what they remind you of. The red has shorter antlers uh, or shorter horns on it, and then the uh, mine that I shot was actually in velvet, yes. uh, still in velvet, and it's still down in Mexico right now being treated because I wanted to keep the velvet because I thought it looked really unique. So they're sort of like an axis deer in that case, yes, sir. in that sense. You know, they can be in velvet any time during the year. Uh-huh, okay. Uh, of course, he was old as Methuselah. Uh, hardly has any hair on his muzzle or anything. The other one, the gray brown that I had, just it looks like a spike buck. Uh, it's got, you know, sharp pointed. Uh, I've forgotten what the length was on that. Right? It looked. I don't tend to put a tape on stuff anymore, but. But anyway, maybe six inches. Yes. Like yes. I was going to say it looked like it was at least six inches. It was to me. I've, I've looked at a few photographs and I've been fortunate to see a few of the, the gray brown. But the one that you shot, as far as his antlers are concerned, were they were pretty substantial. It's, I mean, they looked absolutely big. They, they, it was a nice, you know, I, had, I turned to my guide, and it was Maya, but he also spoke Spanish, and I looked at him after the deer was down, and first of all, you know, I said, do I shoot it again? He said, no. I didn't want to shoot it again. I said, well, I just don't want the darn thing to get up. No, no, no. But anyway, and then I asked him, Grande, and he said, oh, boy, Grande. So it was an old one, too. <laughs> And just the kind you want to harvest. And they had that one on a trail cam, actually. Oh, really? They knew that it was in the area. Trail cameras have made a tremendous amount of difference in the last few years. And it's kind of how we hunt and where we hunt, or where we hunt, I guess, and maybe even the timeliness. Sir. You, you mentioned the uh, red rocket was in velvet. So they're somewhat very similar to uh, tropical deer, like the basically the axis deer, where you have some bucks in hard antler and some in, in uh, velvet in different stages of antler development. Absolutely. Yeah, that apparently. Now, Larry, uh, I'm an expert on this because I killed them within 24 hours of one another. Actually, Craig brought bodies and said, so do you feel like an expert? And I said, no, I don't know anything about them at all. I wasn't around them for very long, you know. So I don't know what the percentage is. That would be fascinating to know, and I bet somebody in some museum knows, you know, what percentage are in velvet at any given time and what are in hard antlers. Uh, but, of course, my gray brown was hard and the red rocket, yeah, was in velvet. I'll be darned. That's, that is so very interesting. I, you know, the axis deer, as we kind of mentioned, within a herd, there are always some bucks in hard antlers and some in, that have just mm-hmm. cast their antlers. Some of them are in, in various stages of velvets. And I wonder, and I think that's probably because I know there's got to be a genetic link to that, but is that kind of a genetic link to having food availability or having food available throughout the year as opposed to seasonal food? I suspect that that is, that, well, as a geneticist, I'm going to be a geek and a nerd for a moment. There's always <laughs> a genotype by environment interaction, and you're right. These guys live in areas where they have good food and not cold weather, right? Right. I mean, they're, they're not really struggling with that at all uh, year-round. Now, it's a dry tropics, which means they have a rainy season, you know, like absolute. I'm yes, just telling you things you already know, but they have a rainy and a dry season. And so they, they deal with that, but, uh, but they're going to have food year-round. That's interesting. It, it, it somehow relates somehow to some things that I've seen in the white-tailed deer. And again, white-tailed deer is a white-tailed deer is a white-tailed deer as far as I'm concerned. And, and how they look and how they act sometimes is primarily just a matter of where they are in relationship farther north or farther south kind of thing. But I've noticed over the years that uh, going back many years ago, and I'm talking about in South Texas, the brush country down there, the rut was a very concise period that took place basically over a two-week period. And over the years, as we've increased the uh, nutrition and the availability of nutrition over a longer period of time to where it's no longer just a seasonal thing, or back like then, it was also linked to the uh, screwworm fly, because if those fawns weren't born at a certain time frame or within a certain parameter of, uh, say, in July, then they pretty much got eaten up by uh, the screwworms. But it seems to me like since we have gone to the point of where we really intensively manage species, particularly white-tailed deer, where now there is food available 
every day of the year. It seemed like that rut over a period of time where the, the peak breeding season dates are still the same, but it seemed like that breeding season is spread out over a longer period of time. I think you're, you know, I mean, once again, you know, you give them nutrition and it will spread out. And they, they talk about that with these, these guys in terms of breeding seasons. You know, I, there's not a lot, as far as I can tell, there's not a lot known about the behavior of these little guys, these little rocket deer. And I think there's a reason for that. They're hard as heck to <laughs> see and study and everything else, yes, obviously. Um, and there's not a ton of them in any given area. So it'd be hard to, to study them. But I, I don't know if they breed all year long. I mean, you have a better guess about that than I, I do. I'm, I'm not sure. You know, the uh, axis deer, is, it produces viable sperm throughout the year, whereas our whitetail and mule deer and the more seasonal breeders have a tendency to not produce, if any, they might, I'm not going to say they're not, don't produce any, but it's certainly a reduced per, amount of uh, live sperm within the semen in, outside of that breeding season. So uh, it'd be interesting. I, as you mentioned, there, there's not a whole lot known. I, when I got ready to hunt them several years ago, and the first time I even saw saw two mounts, uh, Mike Simpson of Conroe Taxidermy, I was at a Houston Safari Club show, and Mike had two of the smallest little white-tailed deer spike bucks I'd ever seen on the wall. And I, they, I, I was just fascinated by them. And so that's, that's that was my introduction to them. And, uh, and I spoke to him about hunting them, of course, but I did what I could in terms of looking for information on them. And, and there really at that time wasn't a whole lot of information about them. And I've looked a few times since then and still have not found a whole lot of information about them. Yeah. That's what I found too. When I was writing that article, I always like to look up the biology oh, yes, before sir. and after the hunt, just like you do. And, and I could find, you know, trees uh, that, that that told you who was more closely related to whom right and from the genetical side of it but in terms of behavior yeah i i couldn't find very much at all well hopefully there's some young graduate student out there that will come interested <laughs> in rocket deer and he can or she can go down and spend two or three years down there and hopefully learn a whole lot more and come back and inform us and give us a little bit more information than what we have right now. You also mentioned the, uh, that there's a tropical whitetail that exists there and goes, I think, probably into uh, a little bit farther south as well, too. And basically, they're not as large, are they? As I mean, they may not be the size of a key deer, but I don't think they're huge body-wise, are they? They're not. Yeah, we collected, I, I was working for Carnegie Museum decades ago down in Suriname and we got one of those white-tailed deer. Well, our the Native Americans down there actually brought were hunting for us right. part of the time and they brought in a white-tailed deer and um, um, the it, it was it was small. But then, you know, you I mean you know this. I mean there's Bergman's rule is yes, you sir. get closer and further away from the the equator, you're going to, you know, get into colder areas of deer or any kind of mammals or regulating animals or regulate their heat um, are going to get larger. And so because of that, you know, that internal space gets smaller, basically. So uh, but anyway, so as you get towards the I guess that's what it is. You know, they're just tiny down there. Right, so right. We were right on the equator. So at the equator. So that's probably why. Mm. It sounded like, I mean, from the reading of it and the, the photos that were in there in the magazine. And by the way, it's in the current issue. I think that's what the October, no, probably November issue of Sports of Field. And by the time people get to listen to this, it should be out. But I, I think Miss Diana sent me an advanced copy and, uh, I, I was th totally even more, now I'm even more enthralled than I was before after seeing both you, or you take both a red and a gray kind of thing. <laughs> I'll have to tell you, this is kind of a, well, an I invite. I the compliment, but like I said, you know, just I can give you the names <laughs> of the guys and you ought to send them a complimentary thing, that, but, which I have been, including tips, but for me, but I just said, geez Louise, I couldn't believe they got me on to both of those. No, that, that just, that simply just does not normally happen as far as I can tell from the many people I've talked to. I've got several friends who've been down there eight or ten times now to try to find a red brocket deer in there. They'll be going back a tenth or eleventh time or twelfth time, whatever it is. The way things are looking right now. 
you uh, you just got back also from a trip from Africa. We did a, a, an interview with you here not too very long ago, and you were just about getting ready to leave on that one. What was the purpose of this latest trip? And, and then tell us a little bit about it, if you will, please. Absolutely. Yeah, it was uh, now, unfortunately, I didn't get to get out of uh, or get into the bush. I didn't get to hunt any while I was over there, but it was probably one of the most important uh, trips I've ever taken for conservation biology for me to understand, especially developing country models of uh, sustainable use or what I would call conservation through trophy hunting is really what they were talking about right. here. and in particular in the African context. So what this was, this was the African Wildlife Consultative Forum. Uh, a lot of words there, but AWCF is what they, they yes, shorten it down to. And it's an SCI and an SCIF, or foundation-sponsored event, and this was their 20th meeting. They have them every year, and what they, SCI and SCIF, because of CITES, honestly, uh, generated the... Um, the urgency 20 years ago with some of the rulings yes. to go to the African stakeholders uh, from all these different countries who are their communities depend. I mean, they live from hunting dollars. And this is Tanzania, Uganda, Malawi were there. Uh, obviously, Zimbabwe and Zambia, even Cameroon and South Africa, of course, right. and Mozambique. We were in Maputo, Mozambique. Uh, they hosted in different countries each year. Uh, next year is Botswana, I believe, or Namibia. I should remember that. <laughs> I can't remember right Both now. great destinations. <laughs> but, yeah, so um, they are... Um, so the purpose is to bring was and still is is to let the Africans come together, governmental officials, academics, and you know uh, officials that are outfitters and all that. So the the Africans themselves, SCI, you know, sends out the invitations and all to all of these places, brings them together, and then the Africans drive the meeting. Okay, they. They decide, okay, what's going to be the agenda? What do we want to talk about? What's most important for us right now as stakeholders in the sustainable use model? And that's what they do. And so they're, uh, uh, we were in the hotel conference room for five days, which I would have once again rather been outside, you know, in the bush talking to these people about the same things. Yeah, sure. But they gave presentations from all of their different countries and what they were doing and how they were doing community development and how do we get more of a voice and how do we do what we do but communicate it better to the general public. You know, especially they're scared to death. Well, maybe that's too strong. But close. very worried, I think. Uh, I could say easily by North America, especially the U.S., and the kind of policies that our government is, and I'm not trying to be political here, but the kind of policies our government is trying to pass with trophy bans and things like that. Because they know that as soon as those trophy bans go in, Americans are not going to hunt whatever that trophy that's been banned right and that's going to destroy their economies in these rural areas the unfortunate thing is that then it goes far beyond that because then the animals themselves will be destroyed over a period of time that's absolutely true i mean there you you know your parallel and you know this better than i do it's a parallel pass over there or in any developing country the parallel lines are community development and ecosystem you know, restoration and uh, protection. And you lose the money and both of those go away. They just, they just get, and then the poaching begins because the people are not being fed from the hundred dollars anymore and they're not being employed. And so you lose, you lose the ecosystems and you lose the, quality of life that was developed around for humans around that, you know, sustainable use. 
it's so sad. Uh, we, I think last time we talked, one of my favorite things that kind of floated around on Facebook is showed several uh, Africans in a small little village sitting around a, a campfire saying, you know what I think we ought to do in North America with white-tailed deer. <laughs> and to me, yeah. that is is exactly the same or it, with the people who have no understanding. I, I kind of use a, a play off that and says kind of same thing. They're sitting in Africa around a campfire and they're saying, you know what, I really think what I do in this community is not allowed people to do this, 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 and this kind of thing. And uh, it's so sad that we don't have a better understanding. One of the Tanzanian officials, as we were going through the airport together, as we were both heading out from he and a a colleague and from uh, their wildlife division, basically, but sustainable use. And I I apologized to him. I said, you know, I I really want, I, I said, it's not me. But it is my government. And I said, I want to tell you that what I see from anti-hunting sections of my government and anti-hunting NGOs, et cetera, mostly led by white people. And he looked at me and I said, yeah, it's racist and it's imperialistic. And I said, they're trying to tell you you're, you're not smart enough to know how to use your resources. And I said, I am very sorry that that's, that's what's happening because that's exactly what's happening. And, and boy, I tell you, my liberal friends, and I have a few, I apologize for that. <laughs> but I mean, my liberal friends, when I throw that out at them, they're, they are shocked to think about their, you know, their narrative is wrong because that's exactly what they're doing. They're just telling them, hey, you don't know how to use your resources. So anyway, I get a little worked up. I apologize. <laughs> Please don't apologize. I'm, I'm the same way. I, you know, I used to, when I traveled or I used to be in different groups, I, I kind of stepped back a little bit because I'm, I'm not very confrontational, but at the same time, when somebody starts spouting things that are totally untrue, dealing with wildlife, particularly abroad, and even here in, in North America, I've gotten to the point where I go, you know, you really really ought to consider this or have you ever thought about this? And so uh, try not to be confrontational in those situations, but still try to at least let them think, you know, to, to me, one of the greatest things we can do is supply people with information so they can make up their own minds rather than just buying into what everybody else is saying. And a lot of times that's kind of what's happened here as well, too. But uh, these days, I, I, of course, I do a lot with the Dallas Fork Club. I, I pretty much wear a DSC patch everywhere I go, and it's got an elephant on it. And uh, that may offend some people, but at the same time, I'll see them looking, and that gives me an opportunity to broach wildlife subjects. And so as I've gotten older of the age that I am now. I don't really mind visiting with people about those kind of things. And I don't mind providing them with the information that uh, hopefully will help them come up with a better determination of how they look at things such as what we were just talking about. I, I think so. And, you know, taking the elephant for an example, as an example, boy, there was a large chunk of time where folks were discussing the African elephant at this forum and in their own context, you know, whether or not it was huge Save Conservancy in Zimbabwe, which is behind a fence, right? Yes. You've been there. Yes, sir. And, you know, or Tanzania, you know, and concessions there, or Mozambique and concessions there that are not fenced or whatever. In every one of the examples that, that people discussed, there are too many elephants. Yes. And, you know, Kruger National Park, why did they pull the fence down? Well, they're hoping the darn elephants will wander out because <laughs> exactly. they're turning it into a moonscape. Yes, sir. And the reason is, is because they're not allowed to call. Yes. And the reason they're not allowed to call is because of political pressure, not biological. No. Not science, you know. No, it, it, it's sad. I've been in some of the national parks in Africa, including the southern part of Botswana and some of the other areas over there, to uh, look at, uh, to just make a tour through. And you're right, it was some of the most degraded wildlife habitat I've ever seen. I, I spoke to some of the people who had been there a long time, and they go, you know, years ago we had a great variety of, of species, not only in terms of big game, small game, non-game, songbirds. Now we have elephants. And very little else. And they're about in some of those places that we looked at, they the elephants aren't gonna be there much longer because they just about had totally eaten themselves out of house and home. Yep. 
Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's one of those things that I, I don't know how many times I've heard that elephants are endangered <laughs> and the only way they're endangered is in areas like you just said, they've yes, endangered themselves because we've let them get out of control because of politics. Yes, so mm. it's, it's hard. It's hard. It, you know, the Africans are real, they're, you know, from all of those countries, you know, they all know what pressure they're under from anti-hunting groups and from conservation groups, quote unquote. And so they're they're trying to balance that uh, not calling. They're trying to, and they have given in to not calling. But I mean, you know, it's just gonna. It's either you just said it. It's either gonna happen or they're gonna to starve to death because they run out of food. So. And the problem with that is, is wildlife populations can bounce back fairly quickly, but habitat takes generations for the plants to come back. And it just doesn't happen as quickly as, as people want them to. But, and the bottom line is, is when that habitat is destroyed beyond a certain point, the species are gone, not only in terms of the wildlife, but also in terms of the plants. And they'll start all over again after everything dies off, I guess, and creates fertilizer maybe or something. <laughs> <laughs> You're always optimistic. <laughs> how do you think, we, we talked a little bit about some of the things that you and I do, but how do you think the average guy who has maybe hopefully now a little bit better understanding, how can they participate or what can they do to help spread the word about what wildlife conservation really is? It, it's not a preservation. It is the wise use of habitat, wise use of animal of the animals themselves and other things that are integrated within that. How, how can they learn more? And then secondly, also, how can they, when confronted with these kind of things, make a better decision or maybe even not necessarily convince somebody, but at least make them think about what they're saying? Well, what I have found, I, I put out, and you know this, this was the first time we just uh, I got to meet with you on the around the campfire. We discussed a new book that I put out. I, yes, sir. There are there are forms of communication out there. My book is one of them, but the NRA has you know how do I talk to non hunters? You know yes. they have a, a lot of literature like that. SCI does as well. Dallas Safari Club has as well. I think I think what we do is if someone's interested and are you know are asking questions or maybe saying you know x y or z about this and we realize that they don't they don't have the information that they could have we offer we offer you know hey you know if you take a look at this it might give you a different set of data that you can then think about. You know, I'm not trying to convince you that, you know, you're absolutely wrong about everything. Just take a look at this. So I think that's one thing. I think the other thing, and this is something you do all the time, and that is educate the young. Because, yes. you know, if we can get them to be thinking about how to conserve through sustainable use, whether they're in North America, whether they're in the Yucatan Peninsula, whether they're in Africa, wherever, you know, Tajikistan, it doesn't matter. If we can inform them and grow them up in that, that's where you and I learned it. Yes. Right? I mean, yes. you know, our dads taught us or our granddads or whoever taught us about limits and taught us <laughs> about seasons and taught us why it was important to only shoot certain kinds of animals. And, you know, why do we have these restrictions on us? I think if we teach them uh, at the young age and get them enthused about it, if we're, if we're talking about hunters now and hunting families, I think that's that's a huge, huge step. I think it is, too. I, I mentioned this before. COVID was a horrible thing in a lot of different ways. But the one thing that COVID did, it taught people that food doesn't necessarily come from the grocery store. It has to come from somewhere else. <laughs> and that in itself, you know, has brought up more hunters and more fishermen are in every state, including some of the very liberal states, hunting and fishing license sales have increased. And uh, what I think a lot of people found that once they got out, not only was it great fun, it was educational, it was worthwhile in what they took, but I think it was also became very important to them that it was an opportunity to learn a few more things about the outdoors. And 
you know, of the people that I've met that spent time with the outdoors, I think they're a whole lot healthier mentally, <laughs> if not physically as well, too. So I think anything we can do to get them into the outdoors kind of thing is what you mentioned there is a proper way to do it. Books. You, you've got a book called Bringing Back the Lions, which is absolutely fantastic as far as I'm concerned. And one of the things I really enjoyed about all that is, is your uh, conversations kind of in a roundabout way with Mark Haldane and with Zambezi Delta Safaris and what he's been able to do and hit that uh, Katata 11 area is absolutely fantastic. And I think that serves as a great example as to why hunting and wildlife conservation and the role of the hunter is so important to the future of wildlife. Uh, it, it really is a great example, and and that book was laser pointed, you know, right. laser focused on uh, Katata Eleven, half a million acres unfenced in Mozambique and the Zambezi Delta area. So it's a beautiful area in Game Ridge. Oh my goodness! So it's a great example. It's only one though. Yes, and I both know that. You know, I mean, I'm working on a book research right now, as you know, for another book, but it's going to be global. I want to go from Tajikistan. I want to go into Europe. I want to go into, you know, I have places in Africa that I'm going back to and are going to next year to investigate different models, but they're all sustainable use. Okay. And then we have that here in North America as well, in the United States and elsewhere, and down in Yucatan Peninsula. They're all sustainable use. And what we mean by that is, just like it says, you utilize those, those resources, but it's sustainable. You're not wiping them out. You're not poaching them, uh, those animals. And then, as you and I know, too, that, like you had said, it protects the environment and it does community development. The folks who are living around in that area have a much increased, much better quality of life uh, because of the hundred dollars pouring into those areas. So that's, you know, that that book that is out right now, I would recommend to anyone to look at. I've had anti <laughs> you know, I talked about this. I had a, right. I have a friend who is, you know, really big into PETA and is so is an animal rights person and she wanted to read it. And I said, Now, Kathy, you understand that and they're good friends, but you know, we don't she doesn't come into my trophy room, let's just put it that way. <laughs> yeah, sure. For some strange reason. Um, and uh so I said, you know, there are it talks about hunting because that's the underlying of this. But I said it's designed for non-hunters. It's designed for my wife, who's a non-hunter, but is not an anti-hunter. But I said, shoot, I'll give you a copy. Anyway, she read it. She came back to me, and I thought I told I mentioned to Francis, my wife. I said, do you think I should carry concealed carry when I'm meeting with her, just out of curiosity? And my Francis laughed at me and said, no, I don't think so, sweetie. And uh, but we talked, and the first words out of her mouth were, "You changed my mind." Really? Now, yeah, but but what Kathy did not mean, and this is why this is what you do so well, Larry. Uh, I'll just say this: you're such a great communicator to people. You put them at ease, whether they, you know, agree with you or not, you put them at ease. And, but what she meant was not, I agree that I want to ever hunt, that I agree that I understand trophy hunting or anything like that, the motivation. She said, I understand now that that paradigm, that that narrative, that, you know, sustainable use actually leads to restoration of environments or can and it leads to the improvement in quality of life for humans and she said i i did not know that before so that's what mark's done that i'm just reporting you know all i did yes, was sir. report what all these hunter dollars did and all these donors did who were hunters and what mark all his staff and their work you know you know, tireless activity to get this place built back up. All I did was report it, you know, so I don't, I'm not taking any credit at all for it, but it's a, it's a beautiful model. It's, it's a beautiful example of what, what can happen. 
but you put it in front of people and more people. I mean, I know that Mark does a great job and there are several groups that push what he does, but you put it in front of some <laughs> very important people, including the lady that you just talked about. Again, in a, in a utopian world, uh, as far as I'm concerned, everybody, not everybody would hunt, but everybody would have an understanding as to why hunting is important. Uh, and that can include full bellies as well, too. You know, in, in a, probably in, in the, in the early days. Absolutely. In the early days, not everybody hunted. Uh, some of them were gatherers. Some of them, everybody had their own little specialty, maybe as far as creating a, a little community or, or kind of a mini civilization. But the hunter was always there, and the hunter was very, very important in production of or bringing in the protein kind of thing. And, and people had an understanding. Maybe they, maybe they didn't like the idea of, of chopping the head off of something or anything like that, but they understood why it was important to do. And, and to me, that's the role that we need to play a lot of times is is, is just as you did there. And, and no, she's not going to be a hunter, but now she has an understanding why all this that you've been addressing in that book was so very important for her to know and to understand. Yeah, no, I agree. I absolutely agree. I think that, and, you know, like fun thing at this forum, I was able to give a copy. You're going to laugh at me. I got to tell this story. Please. So, so I've been, i was approached by one of the dignitaries there, and he's a friend of mine. Uh, actually, he's Mark Holdane's uh, partner, Carlos Faria. He, oh, yes, sir. He features in my book. He's in Chapter 1. Yes, sir. Not a hunter, okay, but uh, but he is into tourism, and he appreciates hunting as a, a sustainable use as a way to help local folks, especially in rural, uh, rural areas is what he's really interested in. But anyway, so Carlos comes up and says, hey, would you mind giving a copy of your book to the ambassador? And I said, sure. Well, I had no clue who he was talking about. I mean, who, you know, I just thought it was a title for somebody in the Mozambique <laughs> government, and it turned out it was. So anyway, this man dressed to the nines came up. Yes, sir. And they took photos of us and all this. And then later on, I went to Carlos and I said, who is that? <laughs> he told the guy's name, Carlos Dos Santos, actually, was the guy's name. He said, he's the ambassador of the United States for Mozambique. Did you not? <laughs> I said, well, you told me he was the ambassador, but I had no clue. No. Well, I just felt like an idiot. But, no. you know, there are people like that that um, throughout this forum, I gave away a lot of books, and, and I just had made a decision that's what I was going to do, is to try to give them information. Not that they needed it. Okay, but no, these folks but. Are, the, the folks at this forum already understand Yes. This, in case it would help them in communicating with other folks. I thought, shoot, just, you know, get them this information. Maybe it would be a tool they could use. I, I think that was fantastic. Before we close out everything, tell us about the new book you're working on. We talked, we just kind of mentioned it in the last episode, but uh, tell me where you hit it with it again. It's on a worldwide perspective as opposed to Katata 11. But. It, it is. And so I'm setting up a trip next year, for example. There are models, there are different models for sustainable use. We yes. Have, you, you and I know this, but I mean, and many people do. We have the Pittman-Robertson Act here. That's our sustainable, one of our major sustainable use tools here or models here. And it's money, obviously, that that's uh, levied against us as we buy firearms and, you know, ammunition and whatever else. And that's great. And we, we are very supportive of that. Uh, but that's a model. Down in the Yucatan Peninsula, they have another model, but it, it, it's not different. It's just investing in a different sort of way. So what they're trying to do is to keep in that area, you would know about this, but they have huge farms for yes. pigs down there. What they're trying to do is set aside areas that are worth enough money that they're worth more to the locals who have that land to keep uh, local governments, et cetera, to keep it as natural land as opposed to agricultural in that case. Tajikistan, you know, I'm going to be going there. It's a different model up in the high mountains and, you know, in those areas where they're hunting. They have women empowerment. They have microloans. They have hospitals being funded and food and all the rest of it. 
but it's invested in a different way, but you still get that ecosystem conservation and you're increasing the standard of living of the locals above Stone Age in many of those areas. Yes, sir. So, you know, Europe's different because it's developed just like we are. It's a developed uh, series of countries. I want to go there and look at how it's funded and how the hunters are actually leading to other species coming back and whole areas being restored. So I, I, in Africa, I'm going all over the place. Next year, I'm going to go, you and I have discuss this. I'm going to Cameroon, I'm going to South Africa, I'm going to Mozambique, you know, I'm going to Namibia, uh, and each one of them has slightly different models, but every one of them depends on sustainable use. And so that's, if I get south like I'm excited, it's probably more I'm just scared to death. (laughs) (laughs) Get all this information, but it's going to be a really broad look with individuals people's stories it's still yes. gonna, it's not going to be uh you know a bunch of bar graphs i want to get the people's stories on the ground and the animals stories and the ecosystem stories just like i did in this this book that's out right now and just talk about the the restoration and the recreation recreation of whole areas and people's lives and that sort of thing the way you present the information is absolutely fantastic. It is so it's fun to read. It, it's like, um, you know, there there's all kinds of reading out there and there's some that's boring. There's some that's totally scientific and there's some of this and some that's that. But your style of writing is such that it, it only makes you want to read more what you write, quite frankly. So I can't wait for this, well, this new book. You say that. That's kind. Tell us how people can get uh, bringing back the lines and, and how they can stay up with you on some of the things that you're involved in right now and you're involved in a lot of different things as well too they can go to so my website is mikearnoldoutdoors.com they can just go there the book itself, the, the page, if you go to the Mike Arnold Outdoors, you'll see a little tab up at the top and you can click on it that says book. But you can also directly go to our page uh, where we're selling it from our site, uh, which is just bringing back the lions dot com no spaces they can also get it on amazon they can get it i mean they can get it all over the place and uh you know it's in it's in a audible version if you like listening to these that's what my kids wanted was the version cool. that, that i love it in their cars <laughs> and uh there's also you know kindle version or whatever and then Right. Of course, I'm old, so I like the print version. <laughs> <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> well, I'd highly advise anybody that loves the outdoors, whether you're interested in bringing back the lions or anything having to do with Africa, this is a book I think you can really, really appreciate and, and truly gain a better understanding of what's going on in some parts of the world, what has been done, what can be done, and, and really kind of what we need to do. One, one more question before we shut this thing down. You got any hunts planned for yourself this year? We're hitting into the hunting seasons now across much of North America. Yeah, you know, this is going to sound this is going to sound funny. Of course, I, I'm intending to get out again into the whitetail woods. Uh, I, you know, I love just sitting on a stand. Maybe I'm getting old and lazy that I love sitting <laughs> on a stand, but I really love sitting on the stand in the eastern woods as much as I do as walking around in the west. I love that too. But I'm also I have a buddy in South Carolina. I'm looking. I'm in my trophy room right now. Oh, office, perfect. And I'm looking at my bobcat that he got me. Oh, yes. We, I have been skunked trying to kill a coyote over here. And that is, and Larry, don't laugh at me, but I've missed the darn things. I mean, I've been out twice and I've shot around. I mean, there's not that much air around a coyote compared to a bobcat. I hit the bobcat, but I don't know why I can't hit the coyote. So anyway, he's, he's promised me when it, when it uh, all kidding aside, when it gets cold, we're going to get together in South Carolina and see if I can finally get one of those darn things. How, how fantastic. I, I love predator hunting. 
Well, one of these days we need to get you over this way. Uh, I do a fair amount of stuff with uh, Gary Robertson and uh, with Burnham Brothers Game Calls. And and Gary's come up with this ultrasonic call that he calls the freak. And we need to get you over here. Uh, We'll visit some more around and and set up a a real campfire this next time. Maybe we can get you to come over and uh, sometime during the wintertime and grab Gary. And I think there's there's some hunting models that Gary might be able to address with you regarding some the predator things oh, but uh, i'd love to do that larry i'd yeah. love to share a campfire with you well we'll see if we can't get that done and i will tell you that i i've only shot one eastern coyote and that was in georgia several years ago and and uh, that's not for a lack of trying to those coyotes that are east of the mississippi or east of the uh sabine river i guess even in texas are a totally different animal and is in terms of responding to calls and responding to being a, or being able to take one. So wish you the best of luck there, but we, we also need to get you down. I've got a friend that just opened some property up in Belize that has got some tropical whitetails and we'll, we'll spend a little time around a campfire down there, hopefully as well too, in the not too distant future. Oh, that sounds wonderful. Thank you so very much for, for joining me this today. I'm not going to say this morning, this afternoon, because I never know when people get to listen. But what an absolute pleasure and honor to spend time with you around the campfire again. And I promise you here in another couple of months or so, I want to check on you because I want to see how you do on that that uh, eastern coyote. And uh, we'll, we'll spend a little bit more time around the campfire, telling maybe just telling hunting stories next time. That sounds fantastic. Thank you, Larry. Thank you so very much. Ladies and gentlemen, please join us right back here next week for DSC's Campfires with Larry Weissoon. Appreciate y'all being with us. Thanks for joining us around the campfire. To leave a comment or suggestion for an upcoming episode, go to Instagram at Larry Weissoon Outdoors. Please join me right here next week for another DSC's Campfires. DSC's Campfires with Larry Wysoon has also been brought to you by The Crown Bar in LaGrange, Texas, H3 Whitetail Solutions, Remington, Texas Wildlife Association, TRHP Outdoors. You'd think, with four of us spread out on a tiny island, that the task of tagging a whitetail would not be a big thing. But, as I've learned, no matter where I've been, whitetails can be damn tricky. Pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Spend your Saturdays with life on the water. Join Captain Brandon Simmons for fishing, diving, travel, and so much more. You want to succeed. You want to fish. You want to be one of the greatest. Oh, look at that thing, dude. (laughs) Let's see what kind of trouble we can get into today. Don't miss Life on the Water every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. (laughs) The destination for outdoor entertainment.